Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you are here. We are in part three of a series we are calling Our Secular Age. We are on part nine of Hot Sweaty Theater. Um, it's been uh, a long summer, and we keep, uh, you're asking, like, are you even, like, working on this? Absolutely are we are working on this. Uh, we are, <laughs> we're trying so hard. We actually um, have been promised again and again that it's, it's coming, it's coming. And I mentioned it's kind of like the church that always predicts the second coming of Christ. We're like the one that constantly predicts the second coming of our AC unit. And I actually did some digging on some verses this week to kind of help bring this thing home for us. So I don't know if you know this, but this is deep in Hebrews, but there's a, a passage in Hebrews that I, I just pushing towards this this week. Hebrews 10, 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing because it's too hot in here, uh, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the install day approaching. That's, if you look at the Greek, it actually includes the word install. And then a few verses later, uh, verse 37, for in just a very little while, he who is coming, aka Nick from Airtech, will come and he will not delay. So anyways, um, I appreciate you guys putting up with this ridiculous thing all summer long. All I can see is usually like the first two or three rows of this because of the lights. And last week, everybody in the first three rows, all I saw was this. And so everybody's like, pull out your note sheets. They're all uh, being used right now. Thank you very much. Don't need those to take notes. Um, so yes, if you're new, this is, it is warm in here today. It's not just to you. Um, uh, so the series has been a look at uh, kind of the world that we live in. Uh, we called it a, Our Secular World, and uh, I designed it because, or I, I did, chose this topic because in the summertime, we typically get a lot of kind of home teamers, people who are already kind of convinced, and, and uh, it's great. We love that, and it's a, a great time for us to be able to go, all right, here's a little bit for us from a um, for Christians type perspective, because a lot of our time, we are trying majorly gear ourselves towards outsider focus and making sure that we're a welcoming place for anybody coming from any walk of life. Uh, and so uh, if you're here and you're a guest and you're irreligious and, and not really a Christian, don't identify in that way. That's totally great. This is a, just so you know, this is a series where you get to kind of like sit back with your arms crossed and be like, I don't know what I think about that. That's totally fine. Um, uh, but for those of us who, are, you know, call ourselves Christians, this is going to be a way to understand the world that we live in, the people that you work with, uh, the relatives who are kind of like, uh, related to you, and every once in a while you got to get together, and and uh, this winter you get together, holidays and all that kind of stuff, and you're trying to deal with different sort of worldviews, different sort of mindsets, different sort of ways that they see the world and the decision, decisions that they make, and, and how do you kind of work within all of that? So the question that has been kind of the primary focus for the entire series uh, came to us from a, a book that we call that we looked at called um, Our Secular Age by a guy named Charles Taylor. Really thick, the word it's a it's a giant read. Don't recommend it. Uh, although I do recommend it, but I don't recommend it. Does that make sense? I don't know. Um, but there's a question that it starts with, uh, and it's a, he's a Canadian philosopher, so it's, it's a little bit difficult. Uh, basically, how do we go from 1,500 years, or in the year 1,500, where everybody believed in, in God, some sort of a deity, to now 2,000, where, like, generally, you don't. Or, I put it in this phrasing, how, in a relatively short period of time, did we go from a world where belief in God was the default assumption to our secular world in which belief in God seems to many unbelievable? And what I mean by that is, you work with some people who, when they find out that you go to church on Sundays, they're like, really? You? You seem so, like, smart. Like, what, what are you doing going to a church, right? I mean, like, haven't we kind of evolved out of that? Haven't we as a society, again, we, this is, they would never maybe say it in these words, but we used to believe in all kinds of deities and spirits and um, whatever else. And then we kind of came up with science developed for us naturalist explanations for why it doesn't rain in the Tri-Cities. It's not that the gods are angry with us. It just all stays on the west side because of mountains, right? And so we are not surprised. We don't wake up this morning going, oh man, the spring gods hate us. What are we going to do? You go, 
It's, uh, it's August in the Tri-Cities. It's a desert. This is what you get, right? So it'll, it'll come. It'll happen. But like November, we'll get rain. It's, it's fine. Um, so, so that's for us. So then we, we, we've kind of said the, the settled narrative has been that kind of science has explained some things for us. And so now we no longer need all of that stuff. And as science progresses, uh, slowly minimizes our need for religion. And as a result, in week one, we said we live in a disenchanted world. We live in a world that's primarily flat. And by flat, I mean... You get what you see, right? You see what you get. Everything you can taste, touch, see, and feel, that's real. Everything beyond that is not real. Um, and for the most part, that is how a majority of our world sort of lives. Even, even Christians at some point have become disenchanted. I gotta believe in God and I do this. But for the most part, like my week is, you know, it's, it's pretty flat. It's pretty non-transcendent. I'm gonna go to the fair. Like I'm gonna eat Piggly Wigglies. That's, what I'm, that's like gonna be the highlight of my week this week. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty simple. It's gonna be pretty straightforward. It's not gonna look a lot different than people who uh, don't believe in the things that I believe in. And, and, and so, uh, the fact the fact that we live in a disenchanted world or non transcendent world was week one. Week two uh, was simply that um, a, a big shift took place in about fifteen eighteen or so, called the Protestant Reformation. Um, and in that shift, it became things became very personal. They, they took it upon themselves. They took Colossians three twenty three, Paul's words to this church in Colossae: "Whatever you do, do it as if working for the Lord." And so, a lot of the science that we feel like has replaced religion was actually driven by people who were doing it for theological reasons. We believe in a creator. Let's figure out what he, it is that he created. So it's kind of like the irony of this that that they they started out doing it for religious reasons, and then all of a sudden it's kind of backfired on them. They're like, "Oh wow, we're ceding ground now to the scientific." community, which is not necessarily true. We said that, listen, um, I don't think that those two things have to be the enemy. And, and what we said too is, this is simply a statement of how the world is. Um, it's not right or wrong that the world exists this way. It just is. In the same way that it's not right or wrong that you like country music, it's just depressing. It is. I don't care that you like it. He's got his dog, his beer, and his tight jeans, and he loves them all equally. That's fine. It's wrong, but it's fine. What about his truck? Well, his truck, too, yeah. I suppose that has to do with it, right? All right, so this secular world, again, this whole series is not a critique against it. Can we just go back in time? Let's go back to when things were really good, when we didn't know what caused disease. That'd be ridiculous. That's not what we're proposing. I'm just proposing an awareness of the world that we live in. And to go through chapter three of, of discovering today, what we're going to talk about, one more bit of awareness for this secular world that we live in. We're going to look at a quote from the Charles Taylor guy and uh, kind of gives us a little head start in this way. The shift to secularity consists of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in uh, which it is understood to be one option among others. So that's the big thing for, for today, that Christianity is offered or is seen as or perceived as one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. In other words, it used to be the only game in town, and so therefore, when you're, when you're the only hot dog to stay in the town, your hot dogs don't have to be that good. Everybody's going to buy them because, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, competition forces you to be excellent or forces people to then choose otherwise. And so Christianity now is not the only game in town. It's one of many games. And, therefore, and it's not really like the easiest game because um, Christianity at its core is is a call from Christ to die to self and to live in Christ and, and live for others and give yourself away. And that's not like super sexy. And so we're like, I don't know. I don't know that it's the best game in town. It's not the best option. It doesn't promise you the biggest house or the best car to drive or the best relationships or that you'll marry up all the time because um, that doesn't even work out. You know, like if you're married up, what's, what's she doing, right? So, so we, we know that 
we know that Christianity now is, is, in a, is in a more competitive environment than it ever has been before. That's not good nor bad, it just is. Now, you need to see that uh, because not only is Christianity a more competitive environment, everything that has to do with beliefs is in this environment. Our beliefs and what we believe about the world and how it works and how we live is more contested today than it ever has been before. Everything that you believe is now facing a lot of different options. With the advancement of technology and information and communication, and now you have the internet and you can be anywhere in seconds, and, and you in the pocket of your phone can look up any answer to any trivia question and have it in a, in a, in a minute's notice or, or less or whatever. It's so fast that you know that so many things are out there uh, everything is debatable. Everything is contestable. Everything that's out there is now opinion, and that opinion can be judged and evaluated based on my opinion or my evaluation. For instance, two weeks ago, TheRinger.com came out with the 100 best episodes of the century. Now, which century? Good question. 2000 to 2018, which means, which you're sitting there going, it's not a century. It's 18 years, 82 years short. I get it. I didn't write the article. Okay, so this is just... I'm just proposing, I'm just presenting to you what they perceive to be the best 100 episodes in the last 18 years. Now, if you're wondering, Laguna Beach made this list, which is ridiculous, just so you know. But I do have to say this. They would only allow one episode from any particular TV show to make this list. So while you may say this X is the best show, they should have the top, you know, seven of the top 10, they are only allowed one episode in this. So 100 different shows, 100 different things, right? And TheRinger.com, it's like a pop culture kind of sports-ish. Bill Simmons founded it. Um, so if you're not aware of it, that might be the best takeaway from the whole message today is you could go waste some time on TheRinger.com. I'm going to give you the top three. I wish I could give you more, but just for the sake of time, I'm going to give you the top three. Number three comes in at Game of Thrones, The Reigns of Castamere, season three, episode nine, better known as The Red Wedding. Uh, number two is Mad Men, The Suitcase, uh, season four, episode seven. And number one is Lost. According to them, Lost, The Constant, season four, episode five. Now, immediately as I say that, if you've watched none of these episodes or none of these shows, you're like, whatever, that's fine. Ringer.com, great. Um, if you've watched any or all of these three, immediately you're going, oh, come on. Breaking Bad didn't make the list? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Flipping tables. Um, you're angry. You're bitter. You could say, uh, there's no way that that's correct. Those should be flip-flop. This should be that. Why? Because we live in a culture where even though they're presenting this, they're, almost, they're not really presenting this as an authoritative, I don't care what you think. We know that this is their opinion on what are the 100. And what, they, what are they going for? Their motivation for writing, the reason that they paid writers to write this is to generate activity and engagement with their audience. They are hoping that you will click this and then in the comment section be like, BS, that, blah, 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 blah. They want that. That means more eyeballs on their stuff, right? And so then what happens is I listen to a podcast from Bill Simmons' podcast where he brought in one of the authors of this and they talked about how she was wrong in all of these things. So I listened to Bill Simmons talk for an hour and 20 minutes on an article that was written on an opinion piece, his opinion on her opinions, hour and 20 minutes, and I listened to the whole dang thing. Now I was mowing my lawn. But anyways, that's what I'm talking about. Everything is debatable. Everything is contestable. We love this stuff. 
our news shows, our sports talk shows, our talk shows just in general, everything about new, so much of what we see on social media, everything is opinion-based. Everything's out there. And because we know it's out there, we know that whatever we present is also going to be contestable. So how many times have you thought about putting an opinion out there and then being like, eh, I don't know if I'm ready to defend my opinion that well. So I'm going to delete this draft and I'm going to save myself an hour from having to defend why Breaking Bad should have made the top three or whatever the case may be. We understand this. And so as a result, what happens is we have opinions about things, but we hold them depending on like our level of competitiveness, right? So you could write this article and be like, I'm ready to die on the hill for any of these top five or whatever. Or for the most part, for the rest of us, we look at this and be like, I have opinions, but I understand that everybody's opinionated and that this is... Uh, it is socially acceptable for somebody to write in or reply tweet or whatever angrily that I'm completely wrong and I am then forced to kind of defend myself and then we go back and forth and agree to disagree and whatever and I, I'm, not, I'm not into that so I'll just withhold all of this information because I don't want to engage in it. I understand that everything is contestable and as a result too, here's what we're skeptical of. We are skeptical of social institutions that attempt to tell us what to think. We don't like um, being told that, that such and such is an authority figure on this. Trust us, this is the right answer. The ringer did not say, these are the 100 best episodes. We don't care what you think. Um, don't argue with us, right? We would, we would immediately be like, well, who do you think you are? You know what I mean? That's what we would do. We understand that the, authority, that the, that the uh, manner in which they did it was meant to engage debate. That's the purpose of it, right? So then we're okay with them saying, here are the 100, 100 best episodes. If they would have said, don't argue with us. This is what it, we've done the research. We've done all the tests and we've done more surveys than you know how to do. Immediately we'd be like, well, who'd you survey? Well, what were the responses? Do you have any sort of proof? that This is why, this is why more so than ever, our culture, you wonder how our culture can begin to have critiques or begin to question the legitimacy of sort of the, the mainstream media. The fact that this is a topic that we're even talking about. Well, where did they get their sources? Well, where did they get their stuff? Why is this? Now, I'm not talking, I'm not pro either or, okay? Don't paint me in a political corner. It's not what this is about. What I'm saying is take a step back and evaluate even that critique. Isn't it interesting that we can begin to critique even that? Why? Because we don't like being told what to think. Give us the options. We feel rational enough to be able to see a plethora of options and decide what we think is best. You give me as accurate information as possible. Don't offer me opinions, or if you do, I'm going to take them and banter back and forth with you, but I'm not going to just receive them un, uh, unchallenged. I'm going to have an opinion on them and move in this way uh, and move forward with this. So as a result, if that's true... Then Charles Taylor calls this the age of authenticity. We live in the age of authenticity. We need to be authentic to ourselves. We need to take what's inside of us and prioritize that over what other social structures, uh, social structures or authorities or denominations or whatever else is trying to tell us to do. He defines it this way. We find ourselves immersed, or we find ourselves immersed in the social imaginary of expressive individualism. Two big fancy words. Social imaginary just means um, this is how we kind of imagine things to be. We don't we don't we can't really define them, but this is how we see the world and this is how we operate in the world. There are things uh, that, that we might um, uh, not really say that we agree, but our actions line up in this way, and apparently this is how we act, and so this is how we believe. 
And then expressive individualism. It becomes all about me and my identity and what I'm being perceived to make, right? Because the choices make us. We make choices, and then the choices make us. This is based on an understanding that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own life as opposed to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside. This all resonates really well, not just with millennials, guys. This is, not a, this is a problem in the last 10 years. This has been a problem that has been in the process for several hundred years, and now we are beginning to feel these effects of... Um, and, and neither good nor bad, right? But, but your choices begin to define you. Our ability to choose becomes the utmost virtue and the utmost value. Belief itself is flattened and shifted to the inner judgment of the individual. And what's most important to us is not only or even primarily our beliefs, but how they affect our identity. Listen, this is where the shift becomes. This is where, okay, I can agree with this, uh, to, to some extent, but do you see that we, we say that our beliefs are most important and we shape our decisions or we, we, our, our, our uh, decisions that we make are influenced by the beliefs that we have, but the reality is in this world, because we're so obsessed with, uh, with expressive individualism and we know that our choices shape us, we prioritize how this looks on us more than what we actually believe. In practice, in practice, how this looks on us is more important than what we actually believe. Identity formation is the central concern. Our beliefs are just another way we articulate that identity. Now, you've seen this because you have friends who post too much on social media, and you're like, ah, every time she goes to the gym, it's always on there. Listen, I think she just drives in the parking lot, takes a picture of her walking into Gold's Gym, and then drives out of the parking lot, goes to McDonald's. I think that's what happens, because there's no possible way she goes to the gym that much, or eats that food all the time, or whatever, or he's so this, or that, and or, you know, whatever, or this is his job, or you see these people who uh, post about all, all of the books that they read, because there's so much, they have apparently so much more time than you have, right? It's so, at some point, it, it, you can brush it off as egoism, right? When it's extreme, it feels like egoism, and we can feel like we don't have, you know, we're not like that. But we fail to see how, even in minor ways, it's a little bit about us, that that's how we live it out. We feel like we're constantly putting things out there to shape the perception of what people have on us, and it becomes more important than our beliefs. We create our identity in a chaotic and hostile world. And so, since this is a church and this is supposed to be a sermon, let's bring this into what does this mean for us religiously? Because this is great from like a big 5,000 foot level in terms of, you know, social awareness. But what does it mean for us here? It means that there is a temptation for us in our secular world to treat religion in the same way. Asking ourselves the question, not audibly because this feels shallow, but, but really if we were to be honest with ourselves, we may ask ourselves the question, would adopting Christianity fit with and improve my authentic identity? Should I do this because I want the appearance of being religious? Because I live in like a conservative part of the state and, and in this part of the state or within my family or social structure that I'm in or the friend circle that I'm in, being religious feels like part of being put together. Um, so I need to come to something like this so I have that appearance. 
for it. And, and that's part cynical Brent looking at that, knowing, seeing people who all of a sudden are going through a custody battle with their kids and an ex who's struggling with this and to develop their character in the eyes of the judge or the whoever else, start showing up to church, start doing all kinds of posts with Bible verses and quotes that aren't really in the Bible. But that's okay. You put a little butterfly on it. It looks like it looks biblical at that point, right? And you put it in there and skeptical you goes, that feels... And I don't want to challenge, gosh, dude, I don't know their life. Maybe they really did find Jesus. But it feels a little opportunistic. Feels maybe a little bit manipulative. It feels a little bit like this works with the identity that I'm trying to create for myself. So therefore, I'm going to engage in something like this. Would this faith improve my quality of life? Another take on it that I think is an interesting one when it comes to if you're, if you're on the fence about, do I really believe that this is the, the world that I live in or, or not? Think about the difference between the testimony of somebody who like grew up in church and like their family, the parents drugged them to church until they were 18 and then they just chose to stay. Like we do these like baptism videos. We'll have like three in the next five weeks. Uh, in these baptism videos, some of them are like super... And I say, I, I, I'm going to say super good because you'll be like, oh, you know the ones that I love where they're like, dude, I rebelled at 18. I was in the cartel um, and then I killed seven people and then I went to jail, but it was all, you know, and then I found Jesus and it was in, and I, I was high at the time, but then I found Jesus and then I found Eastlake and I'm here because, and everybody's like, oh, not a dry eye in the place, right? We're like, oh my gosh, so good. That testimony was amazing. And then somebody goes, I, was, uh, I grew up at the uh, Lutheran church there. And then, uh, and then I went to a, uh, an Anglican church for a little bit. But then, and then now I'm here. And um, I, uh, I pay my mortgage every month. And um, <laughs> I got married when I was 18. And everybody was like, oh, man. Can we get the dunking over already with? Can we get on to the next thing? Why is that? We prefer somebody or the story of somebody who has seen the world and then got right with Jesus. Or I remember I, I went to a, um, uh, a church where the pastor was up there and um, we attended for a while and it felt like every once in a while he would periodically bring up the fact that in college he went for like a self-experience, like where I'm, it's not the right word, uh, a journey, and he began to study all of the different religions of the world. I used to, I read the Quran, and I read this and that, and the other thing, I went on this, um, uh, this walkabout, this like, like spiritual walkabout, and then I came back, and I chose Jesus. And you can see everybody in the auditorium like, oh man, that guy, Ugh, that's so good. We want a pastor who has gone out and experienced so much, and then chose, who, who is aware of the options but then chose the path of Christianity. Or, let's pull this out of the church world. Let's bring this into real life world for you, right? Have you ever met somebody who fell in love at the ripe age of 16, started dating in high school, got married right out of high school, and then you think about it and you think, oh, Kylie, are you sure that you really want to marry this guy? 
because you haven't really even dated anybody else. And how do you even know if Brent is what you want? Because he's all you've ever known. And maybe, just maybe, it would be more healthy. We, what do we pride ourselves on? I, uh, I dated a bunch of people. And now that I know what options are out there, and I've chosen the one that best fits me, and because I went through that journey, I feel better prepared to handle the obstacles that life throws our way. You guys, that's the narrative that we believe in our culture, right? And you might be sitting there going, actually, that totally makes way more sense. Yes, I do believe that, Brent. Kylie's great. You got very, very lucky. I know very many people who did not work out great. It would have been better for them to have gone out. Okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're happily married. doesn't matter. Um, but we, we, we see those two options, and we think, I prefer the uh, abundance of options and then choosing the one that best fits with us and then moving in that direction. All right. You just need to know that that's how we operate because we begin to treat Christianity in this way. Christianity feels like the option, there are a lot of different live options out there. It's very contested and very debatable on which one is great. I have chosen this one, which is fine. That's great. I'm glad you're here. Like, we started this church because, you know, we want you to prefer Christianity. We want you to choose Christianity, right? But then comes the internal question of, did I choose this because of the identity formation that I'm chasing, um, because of the appearance of it, because it makes the most sense to me because of this, or is, it, is there any sort of deeper foundational structural thing holding this thing up? As soon as Christianity isn't a positive thing for your identity, then do we, is it like one of those loosely held beliefs that's like, I think the Breaking Bad should be number one? And then all of a sudden, it's not. And so, well, whatever. I'll just, I'll just find the next thing, right? Because here's what happens. Here's, what's, here's something you need to be aware of. Not, again, not right or wrong. Aware of in our secular world that believes in a lot of live options and preferences, and you get to pick which one, right? The danger of this type of an environment is that we can spend too much time signaling things about ourselves instead of actually putting them into practice. Um. The world is as it is. That's fine. You, there is a tendency for people to spend so much time signaling what they want to be about that they don't actually practice the thing that they say they're about. I can be very much about the appearance of being for refugees. Um, and then when it comes to actually practicing and doing something for refugees, I'm very busy. Like, ooh, schedule is packed. So then somebody comes along on the right or the left, again, don't paint me in a corner, and says, hey, you know that liking and sharing doesn't actually equal helping refugees, right? And you're like, well, who do you think you are? How dare you? Or they try and present accurate, you know, options or handles to be able to do something on it. And then here's the second thing. This also tends to lead to thin beliefs. You have thin beliefs and you have thick beliefs. Thin beliefs are beliefs we have a difficult time articulating and even more difficult time living consistently according to said belief. I believe this. Well, what, do you, well, what about this? Well, do you, 
Can you define it? Can you articulate what you mean? If you can't articulate it, then maybe you don't really believe it. And if you don't really believe it, then good grief, you're going to have a really hard time actually living according to that belief. You see, those thick beliefs are ones that can be articulated, the ones that actually have an impact on how I live my life. Thin feels like, I believe this until you convince me otherwise, and I hold it very loosely, and I'll just do whatever. When it comes to our life, we, we spend so much time signaling without practicing and then holding on to these thin beliefs that really can't withstand the actual events of day-to-day life. Or we find ourselves believing, holding two thin beliefs in hand that are contradictory to one another, that don't actually work out in real life. We signal uh, that we want to care for the poor and the widows and the, and the, uh, the orphans in our community. And then we, we also share um, the stats of how many people take advantage of welfare and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and we, we, we try and like mesh these two things. And people go, hey, and they, they call us out on our thin beliefs. And they say, how come you believe such and such about compassion? And yet, then you also believe this. How is that even possible? Have you thought about how those things don't, don't mix? And then, then we go... We can't articulate it, and so we go, you know what? I'm going to take a break from Twitter because you guys are being way too political about all of this. <laughs> and this is really on you, right? And we, we, it's called cognitive dissonance. We don't know how to deal with this, and so we then ignore it completely, and we escape, and we escape back into our disenchanted flat world where thin beliefs are enough for us. That's the world that we live in, guys. Now, we don't have to live that way, and we also can be more aware of the difference between our thin and thick beliefs. It's fine to have thin beliefs. We are all going to have, listen, when it comes to TV episodes, you should have thin belief systems, okay? That should not be a hill you're worth dying on, okay? But you should also have thick ones that actually are things that you can articulate and defend and actually have a shaping presence in your life, things that you're more concerned about practicing than you are about signaling. Think about the, um, the healings of, of Jesus. When you read those in the New Testament, he would heal somebody. And then what he would immediately, almost every single time, follow it up with, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Because he's not concerned. He's not like, if you could just, um, uh, if you could go tell everybody you know. And they're like, oh, I don't really know a lot of people. And he's like, oh, crud. I, I healed the wrong guy. I should have healed somebody who's popular, who has way more friends on Facebook. Um, he didn't do any of that. He was not about signaling. In fact, his massive critiques against the Pharisees go towards them being obsessed with signaling. You keep washing the outside of the cup, but the inside is what's most important, and it's terrible. You're so about signaling and never about practicing. What's wrong with you? That is his, like a core message of his gospel critique against the current religion of his day. Now, we are more susceptible than ever to that because of the secular world that we live in where everything is contestable. Everything is contestable. So a couple of questions as we kind of close this part up. Things that have been rattling around in my brain and mind as I'm, as I'm trying to digest some of this and live with you in the Tri-Cities in 2018, right? Based on some of these things. Questions that are going to be at the forefront of my brain for the next, I don't know how long, hopefully a long time. Am I more concerned with signaling than practicing? In the way that I talk about things, in the way that I'm opinionated about things, the way that I like, share, tell, write, talk, whatever, am I more concerned about the image that I'm trying to create 
I want to be, uh, I want people to perceive me as a good dad. And so I'm going to make sure that every time my kids are happy or I'm doing stuff with them, that it's being recorded for everybody to see. He looks like he spends a lot of time with his kids. Perfect. That's what I'm going for. That's great. And not actually, not actually spending time with my kids or doing it for motivations. Am I signaling or am I actually practicing? And then number two, how good am I at differentiating between thick and thin beliefs? Listen, your belief system, whatever you believe about it, it's gonna be, there's going to be both, okay? But the danger comes when we stand for or are willing to fight for something that should be thin or when we're not willing to stand or fight for something that should be thick, something that we should be able to articulate something that we should be able to point to something in our lives and say, my life has been affected because of what I believe and my position, my stance on this. When I was growing up, my mom would constantly have a, uh, a verse. I remember uh, she would bring it up to me. Uh, in, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 uh, Peter and 2 Peter were two kind of letters written by Peter who was... Um, at that time, kind of like an overseer of a, deno- a group of churches, not like a specific church. He would be like the pastor of the denomination or the franchise CEO. He would write a letter. It would be dispersed to all of them. In that, he writes a word of advice to them as they're kind of living in the world that they lived in. Verse 15, Bet in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, the last part is oftentimes forgotten, but do this with gentleness and respect. <laughs> do this with aggression and animosity and battle royale to the end. That's how we often take it. But this is, this is the thing. Have and always be prepared to have an answer, to give the reason for the hope that you have, which for the hope that you have means that they've asked you about some hope, that, something that you have that they don't, right? So they're on the offensive asking this question for the hope that you have. I see this. There's a difference in you. Can you give me a reason for that? And then being prepared for that. I used to think that that meant have an answer for the question of what happened to all the dinosaurs, right? Or um, sort of all of these, do you really believe the scripture is written by man or this, or that, and the other thing? I think more so than that, it's come down for me of do you have an answer for the thick beliefs that you hold? Are you able to articulate some of those things? Do they actually shape your life? And are they evident in the way that, that, that you actually do it? Are you actually practicing it or are you simply signaling it? Are you content with just signaling it? So that's the challenge that I have for all of us. As we look at this verse and as we process through these questions, always be prepared. Are you prepared? Are you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have? In our world, it's going, to have, it's going to be a part of, we're going to be motivated by, by identity formation. That's going to be a piece of it. I don't think we can escape that. But it can be more than that, too. It can be, yes, this is a part of my identity. And here's why. Because it's not a thin belief for me. This is thick. I got a reason for this. And it actually shapes. I'm not content with simply signaling. I fight to practice this, to make this a piece of me. May we be the type of people who practice and can articulate and whose lives are shaped by core beliefs about what we believe about God, 
and Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in our life. Let's pray. Father, uh, man, this is, uh, this is a, a somewhat difficult one for us sometimes because it's also like a social critique about just how we live our lives in general and outside of the religious sphere. And so maybe that's like a personal challenge for us to be more aware of that. But especially when it comes to what we believe about you and how our religion or our faith or whatever we want to call it shapes how we live our life. May we be the type of people who don't see what we should do and then walk away unchanged, but actually begin to make uh, decisions within your will, motivated by you, initiated by you. May we respond to the grace in our lives that you bestow upon us. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard. Encourage to act on it in your name. Amen.